Long Grove Community Church. Thank you for choosing to uh, worship with us. Thank you for being able to be here and join us through uh, the online experience. Uh, as you can tell, um, we got some famous uh, people here in the congregation today, and one of them is my good friend Coconut. So you might hear him from time to time. Hey, if you have um, if you have a Bible, I want you to grab one, and I want you to encourage. I want to encourage you to turn to Matthew 21. We are continuing our series in the R-rated Gospel, and I know it's going to be a blessing for you today as we dive into God's Word together. We uh, started the R-rated Gospel last week, and it was about revelation, God, Jesus being the revelation of God, and today it is about rejection. We're going to be looking at rejection. And I don't know about you, but uh, this afternoon, tonight, there's going to be thousands of college students who are going to be sitting in front of their television sets and their computer screens uh, awaiting a big selection or a big rejection. <laughs> and that is, uh, today is Selection Sunday for the NCAA Tournament March Madness. And I have a strong feeling that the majority of my uh, people listening to me right now probably don't care that much about it, but I know that uh, some of us do. Some of us are, uh, uh, I'm famous for being a fan of a team that's always on the bubble and always waiting then the last moment to see if they're going to be selected or rejected. And that's my Syracuse Orangemen. So you could uh, put in a hope and a wish for them tonight. But, um, you know, it's one thing to be rejected or not selected because based on your performance, it's another thing to be rejected because of who you are. And uh, that's what we're going to look at uh, today. We're going to look at the rejection of Jesus Christ. And before I pray and get into this, again, I want to encourage you guys to get, uh, get comfortable, get the Bible out, get, turn to Matthew 21 if you can. A couple quick quotes. Uh, I love Lecrae. He says, if you live for people's acceptance, you will die from their rejection. If you live for people's acceptance, you will die from their rejection. Chris Dixon said this, if you aren't getting rejected on a daily basis, your goals aren't ambitious enough. If you aren't getting rejected on a daily basis, your goals aren't ambitious enough. I think we all know that it's very, um, it's common to be rejected. We all struggle with the fear of rejection. Um, but we also know that our Savior, He is our model, He's our example, He's everything, and He was rejected. Let's look at some scripture before we pray. It says Isaiah 53, which was the prophecy uh, that was written 500 years before Christ came of the suffering servant of the Messiah. It said this, He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to Him, nothing in His appearance that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Let's pray. Father, we are coming to you this morning, not to a service just or just a time of listening, but we're coming to you and your word, and we're coming to your son. And we recognize, Lord, that... Um, we crucified him. We rejected him. We missed it. 
Lord. And I know it's easy for us to condemn the religious leaders and the Jewish people, perhaps, perhaps or, the, or the Roman procurators and all that were involved in crucifying him. But the, the reality is, is that we, we were a part of that, Lord. And just as Adam and Eve uh, ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which they should not have, we too uh, were guilty. And so this morning we come before you, God, and uh, we want to look at Jesus afresh. We want to see you for who you really are. I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us a desire for your word, a desire to actually look into why Jesus was rejected, why we have that same capacity in our heart and how we can change that or how we can allow you to change us. Father, we come before you today because we are needy. We are desperate for your word, for your truth. We're desperate for Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we would be willing to travel the same path that he, that he traveled for us. In Jesus' name, amen. A couple more uh, verses before we dive into Matthew 21. It says in John 15, Jesus said this, If you were of the world, it would love you as its own. Instead, the world hates you because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And then he says this, remember the word that I spoke to you. By the way, he said this on the night right before he was going to be uh, arrested and, and crucified to his disciples. Remember the word that I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. If they kept my word, they will keep yours as well. But they will trust, treat you like this because of my name, since they do not know the one who sent me. Important this morning as we look at the path that Jesus took that we realize that he said, you know what? If we're going to follow him, we're going to be rejected. And that's the path that we're going to go on. One more verse I want us to look at before we dive into Matthew 21 is John 1. And this kind of pulls together the revelation and the rejection. John 1 in verse 9 says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. You know, I've struggled with rejection in my life uh, and fear of rejection and gotten cut from some basketball teams and lost some opportunities but it's one thing to be rejected by someone else that is out there in the world. It's another thing to be rejected by the one that you love. And it's even another thing to be, probably the worst rejection that we as humans can face is the rejection of our parents or the rejection of our own children. And this passage here says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. What an amazing, the, he made the world through, he is the maker of the world, and yet the world did not recognize him and, and did not receive him. This morning we're going to ask the question is why? Why was Jesus rejected? Okay, um, and, and what does that show us about us in our hearts? Do we have the propensity to reject the one who made us and the one who loves us? And that's kind of where we're going to go today. And we're going to look at Jesus and his interaction with the religious leaders in Matthew 21. 
And I think you're going to find this interesting. I love, uh, I love watching, uh, especially around this time of year, some of the, the, the movies that have been made about the, the, the life of the Son of God. My, my all-time favorite is Jesus of Nazareth. Um, but the Passion of the Christ, I'm going to show you some, uh, or at least read you some clips from that, from the quotes from that movie today. Uh, I would encourage you, if you can, I know, uh, you know the movies can never do what, what God's Word can do. They're not on the same level. But the, I encourage you during this season to just take time as you're uh, meditating and, and preparing your heart for Easter to maybe watch some of these movies, Jesus, the Son of God, the Bible, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the Gospel of John that was made a few uh, years back is very well, literally word for word from the Gospel of John. The Chosen is a series that just came out. Uh, it's an excellent, well-done series about the life of Jesus. Uh, but almost every movie I've seen has this scene here with Jesus and the leaders. And uh, it's, uh, it's in Matthew 21, starting in verse 23. It says, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you then what, by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? <laughs> but if we say of human origin, we were afraid of the people, for they, hold that, they held that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. I love this little story here, and it's going to kind of start us off into our main, uh, main passage today, but it kind of is all kind of in, in, this, in this whole passage here where they're constantly trying to catch, capture Jesus. And Jesus brings them back to authority as they kind of question his authority. And I love how he says, you know, who did, where was John the Baptist from? Was he from heaven or was he from, you know, where did he get his authority? The central issue when it comes to rejecting Jesus isn't often about, I don't know enough about him or I don't even know who he is. The question is, is how we deal with his authority and how we deal with who he is. His authority is a challenge to who we are and his, his authority is a challenge. And that's what Jesus is putting his finger on right on the, on, the, on the leader's hearts. They're unwilling to acknowledge that John came from God because they didn't listen to him. The, Jesus brings this out now in the next parable. Look at this uh, verse 26 or 28. Keep going here. The parable of the two sons. He says, what do you think? And the emphasis there in the original language is on the idea of judge for yourselves. Think about this. You be the judge. Here, let me show you. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his fathers wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. 
For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. I love this little story because it challenges our conceptions of what God wants from us. He doesn't just want our words. He doesn't want us just to put on a performance for him. Uh, he wants us to accept his son and to obey, and, and to obey and listen to his son and to trust in his son. And that's exactly what the religious leaders did not do here. And uh, they knew he was talking about them, but he's going to give them another parable just in case to remove all doubt here. Uh, but I, I love this parable because it really kind of uh, gets again I, I, the idea of who of what Jesus came to do. Jesus' primary message was repent and believe in me. The kingdom of God, where God reigns, has now come to earth. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. And the irony is he, is he sent John the Baptist ahead of him to prepare the way. And in this verse, I love how Jesus says, you know what, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the people who you would least expect to be in church, the people who you would think are the most sinful, they're actually entering the kingdom of God before the religious people are. And, and the reason is, is because they're recognizing their need. How we respond to the authority of Jesus, Jesus' authority will either, either push us away or it'll either drive us to him because we recognize our need. And the irony here is, is that the sinners, the least religious people, were responding. And the people who you would expect to know better to know better, actually rejected Jesus. So let's get into um, this parable. He says, listen to another parable. Uh, and again, the emphasis, when, when, Jesus ever, when Jesus talks about parables, he always says, you know, truly, truly, or listen, listen. Um, because it's possible for us to often be hearing but not listening. Uh, my wife often uh, says that to me very, very often. You know, are you, do you, do you really, are, are you listening to me? Um, uh, you know, very often uh, I have this thing where, you know, I, I'll use a plate and uh, I won't put it in the sink. And she always says, put it in the sink. She says to me, to Lexi and I, put it in the sink. And I always, I don't like to commit to it being dirty because I might want to reuse it again. So I will leave it out. The same is true with clothes, right? You know, we do that with our clothes, you know, us guys. You know, we'll wear a shirt or a pair of pants and, you know, our wives will tell us, you know, put it in the hamper. Listen to me. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, I'm going to leave it out because you know what? I might wear it again. You know, you never know, you know. And so this idea of listening is not always good for us guys, um, but we, we, we can learn from it. But it, what, he's, what Jesus is saying is, is listen to me and take it to heart. Follow my instructions. There was a landowner, verse 33, Matthew 21. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Now, this idea here is uh, from Isaiah 5, um, but the idea here is the, um, the landowner is caring for this vineyard. It's the idea that he is taking care of it, and then he is uh, providing it for, uh, for those who are going to be blessed through it and by it. It says, Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. Verse 34, When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Okay, now let's just stop there. He sends these tenants. 
all right? And uh, they, the, these, uh, he sends these uh, messengers or these servants uh, to collect the fruit from the vineyard, and they beat him. They kill him. And they still, I mean, this is, this is, you know, the people who were listening to this at this time were like, oh my goodness, I mean, this is kind of outrageous. This is kind of like totally like, I mean, who would do something like this? Now look at verse 36. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them the same way. <laughs> Last of all, verse 37, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. Now, again, people who are listening to this are like crazy. They think the landowner is crazy, okay? If he wouldn't uh, respect, if, if these tenants would not respect the messengers, you know, three of them, and then another set, why would they respect his son? And so there's this almost this idea that this is like, this is outlandish. This landowner is extremely like, um, you know, like crazy in the sense of like, why send the son if, you know. And, and look, at, look at how this goes. Look at verse 30, uh, 38. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And this is kind of to show us the depth of sin. This, this parable is, is kind of an interesting juxtaposition between God's outlandish love and grace. He sends these messengers time and time again to collect the fruit, and they destroy them and they kill them. And then he says, I'm going to send my son. And, they, and these people are thinking, like, you know, the, the landowner has got so much money, you know, and it's not like they're really going to collect. It's just kind of like this, the, the craziness of their sin. Let's kill them. Now look at how he finishes this up. Verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Well, the people who are listening, especially the religious leaders, they, they picked it up immediately. They said, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give them his share of the crop at harvest time. They got it. They understood. There's justice that needs to be done. These people were evil. They were wicked. It's kind of like Nathan telling David. Remember? You know, this story, and then David's like, oh, yeah, that person should be punished. How could they steal the sheep? How could they do that? Look at verse 42. Jesus says to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 118, one of the five songs that was regularly sang from the Hallel at the Passover. And, the key, and this key phrase in the psalm is about Jesus. He says, I will become the primary cornerstone of the new building. I will become, the cornerstone was this idea of this, this, this fundamental stone that was going to be the capstone or the, uh, the stone on which the building was built upon. And what he's saying here is that it was rejected. 
And the one that was rejected became the one that was going to become the crucial one on which was going to be built. And that's Jesus. They had re they're rejecting him. And the reality is, is that the rejection of him is going to cause them to lose not only their authority, but they're gonna, it's going to lose their chance for them to be part of the kingdom of God. It's interesting because Psalm 118 is also where it says, Blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the idea that the, the rocks will cry out. And so in this chapter, Matthew 21, Jesus has just done the triumphal entry. And they're singing this around Passover. And they're recognizing that this is Jesus, that blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But the, uh, but the religious leaders don't, don't want to recognize who he is. And Jesus is saying, you know what? Because you rejected me, the, the stone that you rejected is going to become the crucial stone. It, it's kind of like the analogy of a player being cut you know, from one team becomes the star player on another team. <laughs> um, I, have to, I have to mention that. Uh, because that's, you know, I have to get in my, uh, my Dodger thing here real first fast. You know, Max Muncy was cut by the A's and became the star of the Dodgers. And Justin Turner was cut by the Mets, became the star of the, Do of the Dodgers, led us to a World Series. Spring training's here. I'm going to hope you're excited. Um, <laughs> but, but that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, I will become the primary cornerstone of the new building. The one you rejected is going to become the one on which is going to be the judgment. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It says here, when the, verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. Okay? They thought it was something, though, that happened in their past. They were better than that. This is the problem, and, and I want to bring this out today as we, we're going to look at how this, this story relates to us. We, should, we, 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 we tend to look on people who did bad things in the past and with disdain and, and be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how they did that, all right? What's wrong with them? <laughs> but what Jesus and, and God's Word is going to show us this morning is that we shouldn't feel so proud and smug. This passage ends, verse 46, it says, they looked for a way to arrest him because they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Now, it was a common knowledge that Israel had a long legacy of abusing the prophets. Uh, Israel's own history tells us that story. So when he's telling us this parable about the messengers, he's alluding to God sending his prophets and how Israel treated them. Every Jewish boy of the time grew up learning that the prophet Jeremiah was beaten on multiple occasions, thrown into a pit, and then stoned. Elijah and Amos were banished and forced to hide in caves. Ezekiel was murdered after a sermon. Habakkuk and Zechariah both were stoned by the Jews living in Jerusalem. Zechariah got chased into the temple and stoned near the altar. Also, a prophet named Uriah, who prophesied around the same time as Jeremiah, tried to escape into exile, but the king tracked him down, brought him back to Israel, and ran him through with a sword. Jeremiah 26 says. The prophet Micaiah was punched in the face by false prophets. I, it was, it's, it, by tradition, it's told that Isaiah was put into a, a log and he was cut in half. Hebrews 11 uh, talks about how many of them were, were sawn in two. So these religious leaders knew their history. But here's the thing. They thought that was something in their past, something that could never occur in their day. They were too righteous, too advanced, too morally upright for that to happen in their generation. 
The irony, of course, was that they were about to do something even worse than any of their fathers had done. They were about to kill the Son of God. And I think there's an important lesson for us, as I just mentioned here for you. You know, we, we shouldn't look back on, on things that have happened. You know, you, people used to say, well, you know, uh, people in the middle evil, medieval ages and the Inquisition and the Crusades, you know, can't believe they did those things, you know, in the first century, crucified people and stoned people, you know. And then you look back in the 20th century, and it was the bloodiest century of all time. And today there are being more and more Christians persecuted than ever. And we are supposed to be like the most highly advanced, technologically enlightened society there is, and yet we are still killing. We are still murdering. So, I mean, the idea here is that when we hear about past generations of Christians enslaving or exploiting or abusing others, don't shake your head at them in self-righteous disgust and say, what's wrong with them? Indeed, we need to say, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with me? <laughs> uh, what's wrong with the human heart? Because we have that potential. Stories of human depravity should not make us feel proud and smug, but humble and repentant. Uh, we are a race that has routinely scorned and ignored the prophets and routinely used whatever position of power it obtains to privilege itself, even if it means exploiting others. Uh, this all comes to a head in the crucifixion, where we see clearly displayed man's hate and man's heart toward God. When God was revealed, we hated and killed him. When Jesus went through his trial, it was actually us, the whole human race, that was on trial. And so that's what the religious leaders of Jesus' day didn't get. They, they, they assumed that their advances in religion somehow indicated that they had a different kind of heart. And that's one of the dangers of religion. It can keep us blind uh, from our own heart. That's why I really appreciate sometimes a lot of people who've grown up outside the church. You know, we're hoping to have baptisms in, uh, in, in the spring sometime. In fact, if you want to get baptized, see Pastor Dell or myself, uh, we would love to do that. And, and we, we baptize believers, people who've come to Christ. And sometimes people who've come, grew up with a sinful past and grew up outside of the church, there's a sense in which when they, come, they, they realize their sin is really bad. And, and it's not like they've done super bad things, but they recognize the sin, sinful capabilities of their heart so that when they do repent, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, God, I, I see how bad I can get. I need you to save me. And, and, and when they sing Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, they do it with enthusiasm because they've experienced how much of a wretch they can be. We who've grown up in the church, though, we, we have a way of curbing that, don't we? We sometimes, you know, we, we become, we stay blind to the sinful potential of our hearts. You know, I... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it, it's, somebody once said, it's like religion is like the perfume that keeps you from recognizing the stench in your heart. Uh, I've worked as a student ministry youth pastor for years, and we go on, uh, on week-long trips with, with students, and, you know, junior high students are famous for not wanting to take showers. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, it's like, you know, by the third or fourth day, it's like, come on, dude, man, this place reeks. I mean, the cabin is like nasty, you know. And then a few years ago, they invented this thing called Axe. You know, <laughs> act spray. And so these kids, what happened was a lot, a lot of times we go on trips or to camp, and kids would, instead of taking a shower, what they would do is that they would just spray this axe spray all over them. You know, and it's like at first when you smell, it's like, hmm, okay, that's pretty good. But you know what? They're not taking away the, the dirt and the filth and the ultimate stench. They're just covering it up. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's often what we do in the church, though, isn't it? Um, our heart is, is essentially the same. 
Uh, and, and what a lot of times we do, outside of Christ, fundamentally, it's, it's the same. Our heart is the same as those who've exploited and abused others and killed the prophets and crucified Jesus. The only difference between us and them are forces and graces outside of our control that have curbed or contained our sinful tendencies. So, uh, you know, the gospel says, no, all of us need a Savior. All of us need. And so as we look at this parable today, I'm going to unpack a few truths that are going to show us um, that we need to keep a posture of humility about our own heart and ask God to reveal in, in, in us whatever is rebellious or exploitive tendencies there are. Um, and the question isn't what's wrong with these religious leaders. Why did they reject him? The question is what's wrong with me? All right. The first thing I want to notice is that unbelief, sometimes unbelief or rejection of Christ is a choice of the will and a state of the heart. It's a choice of the will. The tenants in this parable didn't murder the son because they were confused about who he was. They hated him. Verse 38 says they hated him because he challenged their ownership of the field. Ultimate rejection of Christ isn't about confusion about who he is as much as it is a challenge to who wants to remain on the throne of our lives. And that's the key idea. Unbelief, rejection of Christ, sometimes, many times, is a choice of the will and a state of the heart. By this point in Jesus' life, the religious leaders had convinced themselves that Jesus was dangerous and needed to be killed, okay? But in telling this story, Jesus pulls back the veil on their hearts, and he shows that theirs was a willful rejection. It wasn't like they kept asking him questions like they wanted to know. They wanted to know if he was, you know, please, you know, I'll believe in you if you do this. They had already made up their minds, and they were trying to trap him and to trick him. And uh, in the book of Romans, Paul says that a great deal of our behavior can only be explained in terms of a deep dynamic of emotional and spiritual repression, and that underneath everything else, the thing that we really repress is a hatred of God himself. You say, Tony, what? What the heck are you talking about? Look at Romans 8, 7. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Our sinful heart has an inward hostility towards God. Think about what this means. We, uh, in our natural self, we cannot submit to God. It possesses a deep hostility to the authority and the glory of God. Your heart possesses that. Mine did as well. Mine does as well. Repentance means recognizing that and looking to God to change it. It doesn't mean you clean yourself up and then come to God. It says, no, God, I'm a sinner. I need, I know my propensity. I, I, I faced it. See, by the way, the, this is how you know that the Holy Spirit is opening your eyes. It takes the Holy Spirit to see that sin is not just a violation of rules, but a whole attitude of resentment towards Christ's claim in your life. You see the difference? It's not about the shame that you experience because you didn't measure up. This is why when I, when I equip our leaders to, to do alpha or to do student ministry, I equip them with five or four or five essential questions to ask uh, students and to ask people regularly, especially people who are coming to Christ or considering Christ. And one of those questions is, have you come to the point in your life where you recognize that your sin is hurting you and is hurting God? That, that have you come to that point? And I've seen so many people in the years of ministry, especially young people, accept Jesus into their life 
because they want the salvation. They want the fire uh, insurance. They want the ticket to heaven, but they never really realize the depth of their sin. And I think when that happens, often we get blinded, and it's very easy for us to um, resist the authority of God. That's why Jesus becomes your Savior, but not your Lord. You know, when somebody, someone said that Jesus is Lord of, if he's, if he's Lord of, uh, Lord, he's either Lord of all or Lord not at all, you know. But this idea here, the sign that the Holy Spirit is working is that your sin starts to feel personal between you and God, not just a feeling of shame that you haven't kept the rules. For many people, their unbelief is not a lack of evidence for the head. It's a heart problem. Now, I think about that with my own spiritual journey. I was hurting emotionally when my mom died at a young age. And I, I did not want to believe in a God that would take my mom. And so I came up with all these head issues. And I would quiz all my Sunday school teachers and all my youth leaders and ask them, well, what about this? What about the other religions? What about this? How do I know the Bible is true? And part of me really wanted to seek the truth, but another part of me was just using that as a smokescreen because I was emotionally really angry at God. And what I like about Scripture and I like about Jesus is that he doesn't say that we should repress our, our anger and our hostility towards God. He says we should bring it to him. And the miracle of the gospel is that he transforms us through his love. Um, we've been looking at, uh, this past Tuesday in uh, Edge, we looked at Romans 1. And Romans 1 kind of says the same thing. Look at this. Romans 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what? That's the key phrase I want you guys to see. Suppress the truth by their wickedness. What that means is it's kind of like a beach ball uh, holding it underwater. You can hold it for so long, but it's going to pop up. And what, what Paul is saying is, you know what? We, we suppress the truth. We don't want this truth about our sin to be known. So look at verse 19. It says, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. It's not so much a head problem as it is a heart problem. Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist, uh, who wrote The God Delusion, who goes around debating people, recently said this. They, he, they, somebody asked him, is there anything God could do to get you to believe in him? And he said, no. If God showed up into this room, I would want to know what sort of psychological or naturalistic explanation is going on here. <laughs> it's almost like he's gone from atheism to anti-theism. <laughs> a refusal even to consider the evidence that springs from a hatred of God. Uh, I didn't know this until I did some, a little bit of research this week, but uh, the term agnostic, you know, it's become kind of popular these days. Uh, there's, there's atheism where you, don't, you believe that there is no God. Uh, there's theism where you believe that there is a God. But there's also agnosticism where you say, I don't even know. I don't know. It was, it was coined, this term was coined by Aldous Huxley, the author of Brave New World. Yeah, uh, back in the 60s. And uh, in his book, Ends and Means, this is what he says. He says, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality of Christianity because it interfered with our own sexual freedom. 
There was one admirably simple method of justifying ourselves to be able to do what we wanted. Agnosticism. I don't know if there's a God. What I'm trying to get you to see is that sometimes there are heart things behind unbelief. Tim Keller tells a story about a high school girl in a class where they were given the assignment to take some historical figure who had an unusual story. She chose Jonah and the presentation on the history of Nineveh and the social dynamics at work in Jonah's preaching. You know, the Assyrians, uh, the, uh, how wicked they were, and Nineveh and Jonah being called to preach there. And so, and so well, after, well, after the, he, she did a great job with it, he says, after the presentations, the cynical teacher got up and commenced, commended all the work, but launched into a tirade about disregarding fantasies and, and, and being serious students of history. Well, it was obviously, it was directed toward this girl. So she raised her hand and said, is this about me and my presentation? presentation? And the teacher said, yes, everyone knows that all the stories in the Old Testament are all just myths with no basis in reality. There were no such people as Moses or King David and certainly no Jonah. But the girl said, but those people have the same historical documentation as other figures during that time and era. But the teacher said, any educated person dismisses any supernatural explanations from all historical events prima facie. She, she, the professor then added, these stories don't even make sense. How could Moses have led the children of Israel through the Red Sea? How could Jonah have even survived in the belly of a whale, a fish for three days? And the girl said, I don't know, but when I get to heaven, I'll ask, I'll ask him. And the teacher said, well, what if Jonah is not in heaven? And the girl said, well, then you can ask him. <laughs> Probably shouldn't have said that. But, uh, but you know, there's this, there's this, there's this predisposed dis disposition to just say, okay, you know what? If it's supernatural, I'm not even going to believe it. Uh, one more. Thomas Nagel, uh, in speaking of the fear of religion, he said this, I don't mean to refer to the entirely reasonable hostility towards certain established religious and religious institutions in virtue of their objectionable moral doctrines, social policies, and political influence. Nor am I referring to the association of many religious beliefs with superstition and the acceptance of evident empirical falsehoods. He says this, I am talking about something much deeper, namely the fear of religion itself. I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true, and I'm uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. This is what we're dealing with in our culture today. All throughout his ministry, Jesus explained that if you have the right posture of heart, ears to hear, eyes to see, then the truth about him will be evident. But a lot of times, we, the Scripture says that, you know what? There's a predisposed bias against God. And that's what Jesus is revealing here. Now, before I move on, I, I do want to mention that um, rejection of Jesus can take a religious form too. You know, I've been, there's no atheists in this story. These tenants were probably believers in God. <laughs> and uh, the number one substitute for, for true surrender to Jesus' authority is often religion. Religion can be a very effective way of avoiding the authority of God in your life. You say, Tony, how does that work? Well, think about it. You don't want to surrender to God everything, so you come up with a scheme to be busy to pay him off. Uh, I was uh, reminded this week of the, in the novel A Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor. 
uh, they, they, uh, she talks about how one of the characters who avoided, would avo who avoided sin so that he could avoid Jesus. And in other words, as long as his life never got desperate, he'd never have to reckon with who Jesus was, <laughs> how much he needed his grace and the claims he makes on your life. For a lot of people, it's like that. The goal of their religion is to keep Jesus in, in kind of like a timeout <laughs> and, and to not really try to know God or walk with him, but to keep him at a distance. The goal is to keep him from interfering with what you're doing. And I think a lot of times in religion, we can do that. So what we do is we put God in timeout and we say, okay, uh, when we mess up or we're in a jam, we, we bring him out of timeout <laughs> and we say, okay, will you please forgive me? Will you please get me out of this jam? Okay, thank you. All right, now go back to timeout so that I can live my life how I want. And some of us, we try to avoid sin because we think, oh, well, if... I'm not sinning big time, then I don't have to surrender to the authority of God. And that's just as bad as the person who's resisting to believe. So we said most unbelief uh, or rejection of Christ is a choice of the will and a state of the heart. Number two, most rejection of Christ often stems from the fear of losing control. It's an issue of losing control. The servants had been hired by the owner, but they were acting as if the vineyard belonged to them. Everything in us wants to pretend like we are the owner, not the tenant. The world constantly refer, reinforces this, that we are the owner. You are the master of your own destiny. Remember the Titanic? You know, he says to Jack, I create my own luck. I'm the master of my own destiny. Now, we're doing a series right now called The DNA of a Leader, which I hope so many of you will do that. And the key phrase in that, in that series is steward. God has uh, entrusted us to be stewards or managers. But here in this parable, it's like, you know what? No, the servants, the tenants want to be owners. And, and so Jesus is seen as a threat because he's going to take away our control. See, every question, every sin question, every struggle we have with God comes down to always this. Can I trust God to define what is good or evil for me? Can I trust God to provide what is good for me? Let me say that again. It goes back to the Garden of Eden. Can I trust God to define what is good for me? And can I trust God to provide what is good for me? And the, 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 the enemy in the, in, the, in the Garden of Eden, his primary focus was to get us to think, you know what? You can't trust God to provide. He's a killjoy. You got to take matters into your own hands. And you know what? When you do eat from the tree, you will be able to define good or evil. You will be able to define your sex. You'll be able to define everything. You'll be able to be the owner of your life. And so when we, when, whenever we come to this whole thing about God and religion, you know, people put up screens and say, well, the church is this or this is that or I don't like this or I don't like that. The issue really is often a fear of losing control. A lot of sin goes back to this question, who owns your life? Is it yours out of which you share some with Jesus or is it his which he is allowing you to enjoy? One preacher put it like this. For many people, Jesus is like the GPS system in their car. You decide what you, you want to have a happy life and you know God has something to do with it. So you keep it there, the GPS. And it helps you know which way to go. But you've always got the option to disobey the directions. And so the GPS tells you to turn and you choose not to and God patiently says, recalculating. <laughs> God is the owner for your life, not the navigation system for it. I want to pull you guys over to John 18 real fast, because this, is, this, is, this fear of losing control is so key. I want you to see Pilate. 
Pilate's not one of the religious leaders. He's one of the secular leaders. And look at what he says. They're bringing, him to Pilate, they're bringing Jesus to Pilate, and uh, they want Pilate to be the one to crucify him. Pilate then went back inside the palace, John 18, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? So right off the bat, Jesus is like calling Pilate. You know, Pilate, are you, are you just trying to do your, get your job done, or do you really care about the answer to this? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, this reason I was born and came into the world the reason I came into the I was the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Circle that in your Bible if you don't have it, verse 37. The reason I came into the world was to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then famous Pilate's famous line, what is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but is your custom for me to release you, the one prisoner at the time of the Passover? Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. And Mark says this, it was to satisfy the crowd that he, he gave Jesus over to be crucified. I love the Passion of the Christ movie and particularly the scene with Pilate and his wife. And Pilate had, Pilate's wife had a dream. I think the Gospel of Matthew says, says you know, don't, don't mess with this man. She had a dream about Jesus. And in this little scene, this is the clip. I just want to read this to you. Pilate says, what is truth, Claudia? Do you hear it, recognize it when it is spoken? Yes, I do, Claudia says. Don't you? How? Pontius Pilate says, how? Can you tell me? Claudia says, if you will not hear the truth, no one can tell you. Truth? Do you want to know what my truth is, Claudia? I've been putting down rebellions in this rotten outpost for 11 years. If I don't condemn this man, I know Caiaphas will start a rebellion. If I do condemn him, then his followers may. Either way, there will be bloodshed. Caesar has warned me, Claudia, warned me twice. He swore the next time the blood would be mine. That is my truth. It's interesting. There's this fear of losing control, fear of losing his own life. Jesus said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses it for my sake will save it. Most rejection of Christ often stems from the fear of losing control. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you want to know the truth about Jesus? Or do you just want Jesus to do what you want him to do and then leave you alone? I think a lot of us sometimes, we live our Christian lives like that if we're honest. The last thing is this. Unbelief is a choice of the will and a state of the heart. Most rejection of Christ stems from the fear of losing control. And God's patience and grace is amazing. But it has an expiration date for those who reject Him. God's patience and grace is amazing. But it has an expiration date for those who choose to reject Him. 
In this story, God shows his grace toward us in this story in repeated ways. First, the fact that he gives, he gives the vineyard to us to enjoy to begin with. Life and the pleasures that go with it are just a great gift that God gives us to be happy. Second, through the repeated warnings, patient warnings, as he sends the rebellious farmers. In this story, he doesn't just send them one messenger or one chance to repent, but chance after chance after chance. The same is true for us. I don't know about you, but he sends me repeated warnings. Often, he, the Bible says he forgives our sins once and again and again and again. It could be through a message like this that you might be receiving a, a message to get right with God, to seek him. It could be, you know, just even just going through a difficult time could be a way. The process of aging uh, can be something that, that causes us to be a reminder that we don't last forever and that everything we have is borrowed and we're not, uh, we're, we're a tenant, not an owner. I'm not the owner. The fragility of life is a messenger that we are not the owner. C.S. Lewis said unfulfilled longings were a sign that we were tenants, not the owner. In every pleasure, the longing for it was better than the obtaining of it. He says, it's like my life has been spent, C.S. Lewis says, chasing after the scent of a flower I have never been able to find. I've smelled the smell but can't find the flower. The, the echo of a, turn, a tune my soul longs to hear. I hear the echo of a tune but can't find the original. He said this, if I find in myself desires which nothing, nothing in this world will satisfy, the only explanation is that I was created for another world. Unfulfilled longings are a messenger that we are not the master and owner of what we have. We are just the tenant. And so, you know, maybe you're hearing this message. I don't know where you're at today, but maybe God is speaking to you about that. He's trying to get your attention. And so God shows you his mercy by allowing you to tend the land through repeated warnings. But the ultimate way of showing mercy is God sent his son. He sends his son. And that's why I mentioned earlier, you have to stand a little dumbfounded by the mercy of God shown to these farmers. After they had killed the messengers, he sends his son. Would anyone else ever show that kind of mercy in this situation? Sometimes we complain about the harshness of God's judgment, don't we? As if, it, if we would have been in charge, we would be, have been more merciful. So whenever God's mercy and man's are put into contrast, God always wins. Think about it. Is this how you would have reacted to the tenants that stole your vineyard? The whole story is, is scandalous. It's like the story of Hosea, for example. We're scandalized when God tells Hosea to go and buy back the wife who had committed adultery on him repeatedly and eventually sold herself into the sex slave trade. God says, after she betrayed you and utterly humiliated you, go and buy her back and love her again. And we find ourselves saying, that's not reasonable. And God says, do it because that's what I'm doing with you. That's how I love you. And even in the story of Jonah, we're scandalized by God's mercy and grace. God tells Jonah to go to and preach mercy to the people who have captured, enslaved, tortured, and abused his family because that's the kind of God he is. And the reason why Jonah didn't want to go was because he knew that God would forgive them and he didn't want those people to be forgiven. Someone once said this, the reason we think ourselves more merciful than God is we don't perceive the depth of the evil of what we've done. There's two equally balanced things that we need to get a hold of this morning. And as we begin to close, I want, I want you to think about this. The first one is, is the depth of our evil and our sin and our rebellion towards God. You and I have it just as much as the person who's 
the prostitute or the tax collector. And you know what? It's deep. <laughs> and until heaven, it's not going to be fixed fully. And, 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 and you know what? That's why good people do bad things. Because ultimately, our, we have a sinful heart that's a rebellious towards God. We have a disease. We have a virus that's infected us. But the good news of the gospel is the, is the depth of God's love and his grace and his power to change and to transform and to redeem. And the interesting thing is that the, the murder, the, the hatred that led us to murder God's son was used to defeat the sin in our life. Jesus said, I came to give up my life as a ransom for many. Uh, Paul, Peter says, uh, it, his sins, he bore our sins on the cross. Paul says, in him we become the righteousness of God. He changes us. He transforms us. The depth of God's love and patience and mercy versus the depth of our sin. I want to ask you where you're at with that today. The good news of the gospel is that God demonstrated his own love toward us. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He was willing to make himself vulnerable and put himself in harm's way for no other reason than to rescue us. His death became the means by which he saved us. There's only two ways to pay for sin. You, the guilty, can suffer, you and I, the guilty, can suffer it for, it, for, it, for it eternally, or he, the righteous, can suffer in our place. That's such good news. I said this a moment ago, but I'll say it again. The murder that came from the hatred we had toward God became the means by which God destroyed the hatred in our hearts. His willingness to serve us and suffer us breaks the stronghold that self-centeredness and self-will have in our hearts. And now we have a choice. Look at verse 42 again. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is what the Lord has done, and it is wonderful in our eyes. Though we've rejected him, his re and through his rejection, he has become the means by which we can have salvation. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. His grace is amazing, but it won't last forever. You choose whether to let his death uh, compel you to repent and build your life on him or ignore him, and that stone will crush you. God in his mercy has sent messenger after messenger don't flatter yourself that God couldn't get along without you in, this, in that last statement. The truth is, is that the Jewish leaders, they, in 70 AD, the Roman leader Titus Vespasian massacred the citizens of Jerusalem, tore down the temple so that not one stone was left on top of one another. They destroyed 985 villages in Israel. Spiritual leadership passed to Jesus' apostles who were completely disconnected from the religious establishment, who spent the majority of their ministries taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul gives the same warning to us, to us Christians. Don't take your place for granted either. So I want to encourage you to ask where you are today. Are we walking in a way worthy of the grace we have received? Does our, does our worship demonstrate that? 
Does our giving reflect the gratitude that God has showed us? Of all people, grace and our understanding of the responsibility that comes with it. Where are you with the, with the gospel? Where are you with Jesus? You know, we can look at those leaders and say, oh, you know what, I'm not like them. I'm not that, I'm not, well, you know what, the same thing that caused them to reject Jesus is in us. And it's an issue of authority, isn't it? Will I let God be the owner that he is? Will I recognize my place as a tenant? And that the owner is good and that I can trust him. I want to encourage you this, this season to come back to God, to come back to Christ you haven't and to come back to recognizing that he was rejected for you because in us is that ability to reject him and he wants to transform our hearts and when he does transform you you want to share it with others and so those of us who are Christians who are, are saying you know what I, I get it I, I don't want this. I want, the, I want the gospel. I want Jesus to change me. You know what? When you start letting him do that, it's going to create within you a desire to go and share it. And one thing the whole COVID experience has taught me is that if, if I'm not going to share Jesus Christ during COVID, when am I? <laughs> I mean, people are ready. People are hurting. People want answers. Let me close with this quote. It's from Penn Jillette. And I came across it yesterday as I was putting together this message. Penn and Teller are one of the uh, famous magic magicians in the world. They have a TV show. You might have seen them, Penn and Teller. They're also very firm, hardcore, card-carrying atheists. A few years ago, Penn uh, was talking about people who were trying to share their, the Christian faith with him. And this is what he said. He said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. The word proselytize means to share your faith. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward. And atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believe beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Wow, that's coming from an atheist. And you and I are so afraid of being rejected. <laughs> I think um, the, uh, the stakes are much higher. Let's pray. Father God, I pray in Jesus' name that you would help us to come to terms with our rejection of Christ. The part of us in us, Lord, that is constantly hostile towards you and wants to live life on our own terms and be the owner. God, this morning we want to say, Lord, no, we don't have it all together. We need the owner to set us right. Thank you, God, for sending your son. Thank you for being so gracious to us to give us good things, to give us this earth, to give us this life. Yes, it's cursed and it's fallen, God, but thank you so much for what you have given us. And thank you for sending your son to die for us. Father, we want to put our trust and our faith in the truth of who Jesus is and in the person. And Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would fill us with a passion 
to, that would overcome our fear of rejection so that we would be willing to be persecuted to tell the good news to others, to show that love and grace to others and to present the reality of who you are and eternity with others, God. Give us your courage and your boldness. And thank you, Lord, that you did that for us. Lord, you said if anyone was ashamed of me in front of others, that you would be ashamed of us, Lord. And so, Father, we don't want to be like that. We don't want to be those who are ashamed. Lord, we know that everybody in, in, in Jesus' life before the, before the crucifixion, they left him. They rejected him. His family rejected him. His disciples, all the 72 left him. The 12 were, started, began to betray him and left him when he, was, when he was taken. Only a few were at his crucifixion. God, we confess, Lord, that we too have rejected you. But I praise you, God, that you never reject us and you love us. And if we're willing to come to you on your terms and acknowledge you as Lord, the risen Lord, the one who not only died for us but rose again, that you will give us a power and a strength, Lord, and an ability, Lord, to be your children and to be accepted, not rejected. Father, we love you. Thank you so much, God. Take our lives, Lord. Take our lives today. I pray that as we sing this last song, it wouldn't just be a song, but it would be a, a prayer. Lord, take my life and let it be. Have your way, Lord. You are the owner. In Jesus' name, amen.